0: Use the phrase, the good life. What do you think of? What comes to mind? What is the good life? It's probably something that everybody's after. It's probably something that most people say they want. Some people assume they have it. What is the good life? I was reading in a psychology journal as to a definition of the good life to find it this way, the kind of characteristics or criteria that most people think of as a good life, material comfort, well-being, engagement in something meaningful at work or in activities, loving relationships and belonging to a community. And I'm not saying those things aren't good and we wouldn't want those things and we're sinful if we did want them, but the good life is more than that. In fact, the Christian life, the normal Christian life is a good life, and I mean that by an objective standard. Now, not by feelings or emotions. This feels good. I like this. This is doing good for me, or I think this is helpful or good for me. But by the ultimate objective standard, the normal Christian life is good. And so here's the outcome I guess I would like to have from uh, today's message. If you're not a believer yet, if you're not a Christian yet, that you would find the invitation to the good life so compelling that there'd be no reason in the world that you would say no to it. There'd be be no reason in the world that you would continue to exist without it, to live in opposition to it, or to live something less than it. And if you're a Christian, that you'd be challenged today to the active sort of goodness that should identify God's people. And you'll have a better sense of what that goodness is and what it looks like and how you're going to carry it out. We're in Titus chapter 3 today. And picking up in verse 3, the first couple of verses as a call to worship, we recognize that conundrum. We find ourselves not unlike the disciples and apostles in the first century. It's clear in Scripture from the rise of Peter and James and John, later of Paul, that God's people are not anarchists. I mean, we live in this cultural challenge, this tension, and how then should we live? But we also know that we have an ultimate allegiance in Christ. Never forget our ultimate allegiance We're going to sing a song at the end of our time together, a hymn that reminds us of that allegiance before the throne of God above. And that is our ultimate king's location, and that reminds us of who we are. So we have this ultimate tension that says we're not anarchists, and yet we're ultimately faithful. We have fidelity to our own king, which sometimes means we have to obey God rather than men. What does this good life look like then in the context of a world that's imperfect? It starts with us personally. Look at verse 3 of Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I was having a conversation with someone the other day about typical funeral services, not the most uplifting kind of conversation, but the kind of stuff that people in my profession talk about sometimes. And we were talking about the propensity of pastors, ministers, etc., chaplains in funeral services to essentially beatify every dead person. If you're not familiar with that term, beatify, it's sort of a Catholic term, which means to make a saint of them. In our common vernacular, we would say we preach just about everybody who dies into heaven. And if we're not careful, we're giving this very consistent anti-gospel message. Here's this good person's life. Think of all the good that they did and by virtue of their goodness we're giving not explicitly but very much implicitly this message good people go to heaven and everybody's good down deep inside somewhere. But when we think about the onset of the good life, what makes the Christian life the good life? The onset of the Christian life, how it begins, is not about your goodness or mine. In fact, our goodness has nothing to do with it. The statements famously made by Jonathan Edwards just resonates with me when it comes to our salvation the only thing that we contribute is the sin that made it necessary our goodness is not part of the equation what is decisive is god's goodness and this is what we're celebrating as a christian every time we gather the decisive power of god's goodness is what makes us christian the essence of the christian life can be expressed in these seven words we once were but God saved us. That's the testimony of every genuine believer in this room. I once was, but God saved me. And that should be resounding in our minds, those three essential words. He saved us, or personalize it, he saved me. Not because you were seeking him. Not because you were trying hard to achieve him. Not because in any way, You're deserving him. Not desiring, not deserving, and yet he saved us. And that should beg this question, why? Why would he do that? Why would he save people who are described like this? Foolish people? Disobedient people? Confused people? Enslaved people? Angry people? Hateful people? Why would he do this? Let's break down this question for a moment, and I'm going to go quickly through this part so if you want to write something down write it fast I'm gonna hit this part fast there are two reasons why God would save us according to his word and the first one is about us it's who we were or if you're not a believer yet who you still are and listen to this description again let me break it down quickly first of all we were depraved that's what this terminology is about we were depraved mentally and morally not only were we foolish that's a mental depravity. That means we don't perceive truth rightly. That means our thinking is broken. There's a mental depravity that causes us to not understand what's right or good or true even, and causes us to not desire it. But not only were we depraved in our minds mentally, we were depraved morally. We we were disobedient. Here's a standard that God has given. It's timeless. It's It's established according to the Bible. It's established forever in the heavenlies. We were opposed to it. There's a depravity about us, a brokenness internally and externally. Because of that brokenness, we were enslaved. Never forget that. I know those of you who are part of Calvary's family, you know, you've heard this again and again. This is our old state. This is part of the victory of Christ that we who once were slaves to our own passions and desires, we didn't rule them. If you're in habitual sin right now and you think you've got it under control, you've got it under your thumb, you can handle it, you can monitor it, it's not that serious, it's not that powerful, you're deceiving yourself. Sin is no one's slave. It is everyone's slave, master who succumbs to it. But that's who we were. We were enslaved to our own broken desires. As a result, we were self-destructive. Listen to these statements. We passed our days in, in malice, this darkened, this... This broken approach to people, it shows up in our envy of them, our hatred towards them, their hatred towards us. There's a reciprocal cycle of brokenness that we were called up in. This is who we were. This is your life apart from Christ. Now, this is a critical point that I want you to hear. You might be sitting here thinking depraved, enslaved, self-destructive cycle of brokenness. I don't think of my life like that. I don't feel that way. I like my life. I feel pretty good about me. That's not how I see myself at all. Let me make this statement that you can feel free to disagree with and be wrong. (laughs) These things before you were a Christian were true of you, whether you realized it or not. And they're true of you now if you're not a Christian, whether you realize it or not. That's the brokenness of humanity. You know, I don't take much stock in those nationwide surveys that show the changing opinion of people when it comes to moral issues. You shouldn't either. We don't base our morals on those, right? So when we see these studies that says such and such percentage of people now approve of same-sex marriage, what's the Christian response to that? Indifference. Indifference. When we see a percentage increasing of people who endorse transgenderism, what's the right Christian response to that? ultimately it's indifferent it doesn't change what we think about it because we are not governed by opinions but we recognize in sinful brokenness people will not see or desire truth and righteousness this is who we were so why did God save us he saved us because of who we were now that says something about God so the first reason is our great need but the second reason is God's own character it's not just who we were it's who he is Listen to the rationale behind our salvation. This is why you and I worship. It's why we sing the songs that we sing. It's why you're here on a Sunday morning, on a holiday weekend, because God is good. Listen to what this passage tells us. It first tells us He's kind. God is kind, even to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's one of those, I don't know, conundrum sort of questions, perplexing sort of questions. We always struggle with these Issues of good and evil. Why does God allow, why does God tolerate evil in the world? May I give you one of the reasons why we see some of the evil that we see? Not because God is the cause, but because God is kind and patient even to the evildoer because his desire is not that they would perish, that they would have everlasting life. In Luke chapter 6, verse 35, when Jesus is giving this countercultural command to believers. It just doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't feel right. I don't think this way. I don't want to live this way. Love your enemies. Do good. Lend. Expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Wait, you will be sons of the Most High. He's not saying, do this and you get to be saved. You get to become a Christian. Do this and you will be like your father for he is kind. To the ungrateful and evil. We talk about a prayer like Ezra. Ezra was praying, in essence, for the unfaithful people around him that they might see the truth of a faithful God. You and I, as we fight against the evil in this world, we recognize our mission is still the mission of the gospel that those who live in darkness might see the light of Christ and respond. Who he is, he's kind, he's loving towards all humanity. In verse 4, the loving kindness of God. You know, I don't like saying in the Greek it says, because I never want you to think the Bible you're holding in your hand is not utterly sufficient. But because we know Greek has three different renderings of the word love, it's helpful sometimes to know which one we're talking about here. And the word in verse 4 is philanthropia. The love of God in general terms for humanity that he's made. God doesn't have hatred towards all that he has made. He treats it in general terms of love. He's drawing people to himself. He's revealing people to himself. He he has a church here. He has a people representing himself. And he's merciful towards the helpless and the hopeless. And he's gracious towards the guilty and the undeserving. And we see all that in this text. How did he save us? When the goodness and loving kindness of God he saved us. Why? Not because we were good, verse 5, but because of his mercy he saved us. And by the way, These things are true of him, whether you recognize them or not. For anybody in this room who has a false sense of their own salvation, I'm only a Christian because my parents were, I grew up in a Christian home. Or I'm a Christian because, you know, I did this careful study, and when I was in college, I took world religions, and I evaluated them, and I studied them, and I chose this one. Well, I'm a Christian because this one makes the most sense to me or it feels right to me. And I'm not saying you didn't study or it doesn't feel or you don't think or your parents weren't. But what I'm saying is the decisive factor in your salvation is that God saved you by his decisive will. We're saved because of the goodness of God, not because of our own intrinsic or external goodness. Aren't you glad to know that the gospel depends on a God? Who does not depend on us? Your salvation depends on a God who does not depend on you. And He saved us. Now that's the why, but here's the how. The how is through Jesus Christ our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. The definitive act of the Trinity was the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He gave us new hearts, He enabled faith and belief. And it's through the work of Christ for us. And we've seen this theme throughout these pastoral epistles. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus is depicted as the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. In 2 Timothy 1.10, we see the grace of God being put on full display through the appearing of Christ, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Earlier in, cha- in chapter 2 of Titus, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. How? Not in our minds, our thoughts, our feelings. In the person of Christ, Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself. He rose to redeem us from lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So we think about how he saved us. It's all through Christ. Christ who was born of a virgin, supernaturally of God, without the propensity and nature of sin. He lived a sinless life, though he faced every temptation and every opportunity to sin. He died a sacrificial death, for he was guiltless and sinless, and he was treated as if he were the worst of us by God for our sins. And he rose bodily, and he will return visibly. And these gospel truths save us. So, that's clear. Everybody good on that? Raise your hand if you're good on that. I know how the good life gets started. The good life says God is good to me, and he saved me. Now, let me tell you what the ultimate goal of the good life is. Now, I could have taken some easy shots today. I did something you, I probably would never admit to doing in any other context, but I was reading... Joel Osteen book this week. Now see that's the sort of quote you have to make sure that it's said in context. So some of you are going to put this on your Twitter. Pastor Paul said I was reading Joel Osteen this week and you're going to leave me out of context. And I know this is an easy target I'm only using for illustrative purposes and I'm not using him to pick on for he is beyond picking on now. But I was reading some quips of the book that had become a bestseller Your best life now and what is your best life because i see people saying this all the time i see somebody standing with their surfboard living my best life now right somebody's got their kids with them best life now golf course best life now i hope not i hope not because the good life of a christian the ultimate goal of the good life is your good and sure inheritance in christ now i want to say this for those of you who are thinking critically or analytically and i hope you always are Maybe put an asterisk somewhere because sometimes I think people hear what they want to hear, and in saying something, you think I'm not saying something else or saying something else. So when I say to you as a Christian, the ultimate goal of the good life is your inheritance in Christ, I'm not saying the life that you have right now doesn't matter. I'm not saying your life in this world doesn't matter, and God doesn't have an expectation and calling for you in this world right now that matters. So hang on to that thought. But I'm saying the ultimate goal is this. The older we get, we all come more and more to terms with our own mortality, do we not? That's not being more, but that's just being realistic. You start counting things like how many more potential Christmases do I have, or birthdays do I have, or family vacations do I have, and all those sort of things. We start thinking those ways. And God, God designed us that way. In fact, his command for us is to number our days so that we can live rightly, wisely, so we can number them aright. As we're thinking about these things, it also causes us to recognize eternity is infinite. So, that has to be more significant. And consider the great aim of our salvation. Look at verse 7. So, verse 7 says that being justified by His grace, again, that means it's all of God, not of me, all by God, justified by His grace, that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying, verse 8, is trustworthy. I think the people who Enumerated our scripture verses, got the enumeration wrong there. I think the beginning of verse 8 is the end of verse 7. This statement is good and trustworthy. God saved you by his grace and made you an heir with Christ for all eternity. That's your hope. So that way, when you're struggling and you're wondering what's really important, or your faith is wavering and it, it's hard to be a Christian, or it's painful to be a Christian, or you find it's not popular anymore to be a Christian. Or, God forbid, that you might live long enough until it's illegal to be one? I was thinking about the Supreme Court decisions this week. Praise God for a brief respite in our rapidly declining culture. Praise God for just a brief respite that says Christians don't have to publicly declare things that they loathe. Now, you may read these statements on Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram that completely misrepresent what took place in the Supreme Court. In fact, one of our justices is completely misrepresenting what took place. She's lying about it. This is not an act that allows discrimination against any people group. This protects you as a business person from saying, no, I will not affirm that, I will not celebrate that. I won't speak from the pulpit, the particular case, you can read about these case notes yourself, that brought this to light. What was actually at stake there, what they were actually asking a Christian to do. And I'm glad for a brief moment. Praise God for the sanity of a justice like Clarence Thomas, who writes with wisdom unlike maybe anyone in government or leadership has today. I don't know. But thank God for a brief respite. But how easily would those things turn? A couple of different Supreme Court members, and we're talking about a very different decision today and a very different impact on Christians today. But our world is this one. We're heirs according to the hope of eternal life, and this saying is trustworthy. So our best life can't be here and now. That's impossible. It's impossible unless you're unsaved because God would never allow this world. God just will not. God is God. He will not share his glory with another. That ultimately means that God will not allow anyone to glory in anything other than him ultimately. He will not allow what he has made as beautiful and wonderful as his creation is and all the goodness of it, he would not allow it to be worshipped above him. He would not allow it to be an idol substituting or supplanting him. So, if we his, our best life, you know this, is yet to come. Anything good you have in this life, anything good you have in this life is a gift from him and it's a foretaste of eternity. Just a foretaste. Not meant to satisfy you, not meant to satiate Meant to stimulate your desire for something better, something eternal. Because then and there, when we're with him forever, in the new heaven and new earth, we'll have everything that he promised, all of it. Now, stay with me. I'm building a case here, and you're going to see what it is in just a moment. The good life begins in Christ. It's rooted there. That's where its inception is. That means you can't have a good life, the good life, apart from Christ. Christ. Jesus says, I came to save you. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you would have life, life to the full. The ultimate aim of the good life is the goodness of God given to us by his generosity as a good father in eternity. But the evidence that you have the good life, now we're bringing this thing very close to you, and this is close to the ground. The evidence of the good life in any of us is the good works of the redeemed. The evidence of the good life is That it's really yours. So what I'm saying is that you are an heir of Christ. That you are an heir of Christ. And by very definition, you know what an heir means. There is a will yet to be read to you. There's an inheritance yet to be bequeathed to you. doesn't mean that you don't have it. It's not sure and certain. You just don't have it yet. But to know that it is truly yours and it will not be taken from you, there's an evidence and that evidence is the good works of the redeemed. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things to this end. Look at the so. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Do you catch that statement? Your salvation comes from the goodness of God, not from your own goodness, not by your righteousness, but by his mercy and grace. The salvation is full of eternal goodness that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive of what God has in store for us. But the evidence that we have it and the reason that he saves us and that you're still sitting here, that you still live here, that you still have years left here, is that those of you who have believed in God will be careful to devote yourselves to good works. Now, I I don't want to parse out simple words that obviously we already get, But I just want to make sure we're thinking about these things. There's a reason when Scripture tells us to do something with carefulness, be careful to. You understand the reason. Because those are the things we tend to be careless about or indifferent towards or casual about. Not intentional. Not purposeful. Not with a a consistent mindset. Not doing it just because it feels good at the moment or it comes naturally or easy, but to choose consistently. Be careful to devote yourself to good works. So obviously we're not saved by good works, we know that, but we are saved for good works. Okay, that's the principle. You're not saved by, but you're saved for. Now, with a little bit of time I have left, I'm going to take a hard pause here for a moment because this is critical, okay? What I'm going to say next and how you respond to it is going to be all the difference in the world of whether this message that I've given you has any real practical value for you or not. I think it ultimately will fall right here on how you receive this. What are we talking about when the Bible says good works? What are we talking about? The very lowest bar or rung on that ladder is not doing bad things anymore. As a Christian, and we see these contrasts, these comparisons and contrasts, in passages like Titus 3, Paul wrote of this elaborately in Ephesians, you once were but God, and we see the same thing in chapter 3, the lowest rung on the new life ladder is that the evil I used to do, I don't do anymore, because I've been made a new creation in Christ, and if I've died to these sins, how can I live in them anymore? not have to track with me cuz I can go a lot longer with this part. That's the lowest wrong. It's a necessary wrong and it's the first step. But abandoning the old life, not doing evil anymore is not all there is to doing the good works of God. You track with me? Okay. So, we have to go far beyond simply not being bad. The next wrong or two up the ladder is doing good things that are helpful that are kind, that, that are generous, that are loving. That's part of who we are as a Christian. So uh, that might mean carrying in your neighbor's groceries for because she's incapacitated, elderly. That, that might mean being generous with what you have because someone is lacking something. It might be the general goodness that almost still, universally, the world would recognize as good. Does that make sense? I mean, there are certain things that whether your friends or neighbors or coworkers are Christian, pseudo-Christian, culturally Christian, indifferent, agnostic, pagan, atheist, it doesn't matter. They consider that was good. That was nice of you. Thank you for sharing your lunch with me because I didn't have any. Thank you for helping get my car out of the ditch. Thank you for calling me when my husband went in the hospital. You understand what I'm saying? Doing these good things. And that is part of being a Christian, that we represent good, we do good things. But I want to raise the bar for you. I want to, go, I want to take you farther up that ladder of doing good. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us that we are ambassadors of Christ, we are ambassadors of Christ. You, you understand what that means for us? In this world where we live, Christians like me and you, not just a professional quote unquote sort, but you where you live and me where I do and your family and your friends your context your sphere of influence you are a representative of Christ God's plan and only plan is that he would be making his appeal to them to repent and believe through you God making his appeal through us therefore we urge you we urge you to faith to repentance and belief and faith you represent Christ as Agents of Christ, our holy, our righteous, our just, our eminently good king. As his representatives here on earth, we should be agents of the same. In other words, what I'm saying is don't uh, go beyond, far beyond simply not doing bad things, and go beyond doing simple, good, helpful, ordinary things that anyone would recognize as good to deciding that you're going to be a force for good, for the sake of representing king jesus do you see the difference let me tell you the critical difference between those things as long as i'm just doing general good things now i know we don't live in the you know the upper midwest or the upper northeast but you know if i'm helping blow the snow off my neighbor's driveway wouldn't that be a fun thing to do every once in a while i'm helping with their leaves whatever it may be again on that rung those are good things And those good things might give us an opportunity to develop a good relationship or a good rapport and might give us an opportunity to have a good conversation or invite them to our good church. Might give us an opportunity even to give them the good news. But when you move way up the rungs of that ladder and you decide in a broken, sinful, evil world that you're going to be an agent of good, guess what? You take the white hat off as the good guy And now all of a sudden you put the black hat on. Because the goodness of God opposes the evils of this world. Now you want to be an agent for good? That'll cost you something. That'll cost you something. You'll have to challenge the norms. You'll have to challenge the language. You'll have to challenge the routines. You'll have to challenge the culture. You'll have to challenge the morality. Not only will you be in the minority, you might be in the hated minority. Do you follow what I'm saying here? And for too long, Christians have been satisfied, I think, with just trying to be better people, privately, personally. I'm working on my own, fighting my own demons, quote-unquote, trying to do good things. I'm trying to live a good life. To maybe just being practitioners of just good things that anybody thinks is good. It's not distinctly Christian. And we've forgotten that we've got a calling to be agents, forces for good. As an army of Christ here in this world, how can we be a force for good? What evils do you see that need to be addressed? And not just with words, but with actions and activity and life and investment. What should we be doing? How are we engaging evil to be a force for good? To be a force for good, one pastor said, isn't merely to conjure up some occasional and random acts of kindness. On the contrary, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You want a good verse to memorize? You want a good good one to write on your desk somewhere or put in your Bible or however you remember things or see things? 2 Corinthians 9, 8. In the troubled times that we live, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You're meant to be a force for good in every area of your life, wherever God has placed you for the rest of your life. That's a different vision of the Christian life, but that's the good Christian life. Anything less than that, listen to what I'm saying, anything less than that will not satisfy you. And so, when you find that person saying, "Well, this just doesn't work for me. This Christian life, you know, this doesn't work for me. You know, I tried that or I did that for why doesn't work for me?" I could almost assure you, I could almost, I could almost promise you, at the very least, they had never climbed a rung above. I'm trying not to do bad things anymore and doing good things, because if they've gotten to those higher rungs, it says, "You know what? I'm going to represent Jesus here. I'm going to do good here. I'm going to work for good here." they wouldn't let go. People don't let go of that that wrong. While I say all this, I want to give you just this reminder, and I'm going to finish up quickly here. I'm going to land this plane. Know this. God doesn't need your good works. He doesn't. I don't know if that's contrary to your theology, your view of God. God doesn't need your good works. We have to be so careful that in our language that we've so often employed, you know, this Helpless God who's just waiting for us to let him do something in us, through us, with us. You know, there's this God who's desperate for us that we might serve him in some way. Give him some hands so he could have some, some hands. Give him some feet so he could have some feet. All those kind of things. God doesn't need us. <laughs> Consider what Paul wrote in Romans eleven thirty five: Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, I've referred to this regularly and recently this is the assayity of god he has everything that he needs he's fully self-contained he didn't require us to not be lonely he doesn't require us to be effective in this world god has everything and there's nothing that we do and say okay god look what i did i paid you back right you've been loving me you're kind of me i gave you something back christ died for me so i'm gonna live for him i'm gonna give it back i'm gonna, I'm gonna start paying him back I at this tab i'm gonna pay it off wrong Or I'm going to do this and maybe I can store something away in the bank of God so that when I am not doing so well, he'll give me something in return. That's not what this is. God doesn't need your good works. And technically speaking, you don't need them. At least not in any salvific sense. For anybody who's still laboring with the false notion that um, I know I need to believe in Jesus, but I also have to do this, 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 and this which is the predominant religion of the religious world apart from Christ. One way or another, it's something plus works. Remember, Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us not because of works. This is not not an equation, transaction, you're working out with God. So who does need your good works? Who does need them? Look at the end of verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people for people. If you're going to be a representative of Christ in this world, you know who does need your good works? People. People around you need them. Your neighbors need them. Your coworkers need them. They need you to not be doing evil things and be doing good. They need you to be doing generally good and helpful things that most people would find good and helpful and agree that that's good and helpful. They need those things. But even if they don't know or speak that they need them, they need you also to be an instrument of righteousness, a force for good, speaking the truth, gentleness, kindness, patience, yes, absolutely, all those things we've heard, but seriousness, truthfulness, and honesty, boldness, and courage, coupled with it, so the passage ends with some enemies of the good life, I'll hit this very briefly, but avoid these things, be devoted to these things, Christian, listen, listen real fast, I'm going to finish, I'm going to finish, Be devoted to these things, but avoid these things. Make sure the balance of your life is not 50-50 or tilted towards these things. Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, why? These things are unprofitable and worthless. So what is he saying? Whatever's foolish, these controversies. Now in the context of the Cretans, these were typically controversies of the law, the Jewish law, the Old Testament law, and its cultural and civil implications versus their life under grace. Someone had asked them, how about sharing some thoughts, speaking to the issue of law and grace in the ordinary Christian life? We're going to do that on a podcast coming up. That is a commercial. Listen to the podcast. But whatever is foolish, don't spend your time on foolish things that don't matter. Some people love doing that stuff. Avoid them. Whatever's frivolous, here the frivolous things are the genealogies. I know that doesn't make much sense to us. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention to the first chapter of Matthew, for instance, and see the lineage of Christ. That means if you were a first-century Jewish person, don't think you're superior because you can trace down your genealogy to the nth degree and find someone or some something they've done somewhere that makes you better than or more worthwhile than someone else. That's a simple version of that. The records of the Jews, by which they tried to exert their own authority over, I come from a royal line, or there's superiority to, I come from the line of, and these people, etc. That's frivolous stuff, and whatever is fruitless. He said these things, these quarrels about the civil law, these quarrels, this is a fruitless thing. Does this have worth? Does this have value? Sometimes people ask me questions or they want to bait things that ultimately I find to be so low on the level of tears. I'm not saying there's not a right answer, and if I had a lot more time to give to read all the things that I'd like to read, I might try to engage in that one, but I try as best I can not to spend too much time on things I think are fruitless. And then Paul warned Titus in verse 10 to avoid divisive issues and divisive people. Don't waste your time in things that are foolish, frivolous, and fruitless. And also don't waste your time with those people who love it. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and simply self-condemned. So again, this is the false, the context is the false teachers of the Cretan church. They're on the Isle of Crete. And you can see this all in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. There are controversies and arguments about the law, etc. What's profitable? The gospel, the power of God into salvation, the ability of God to forgive anyone and to make them new creations who are freed of the sins that were destroying them, the decisive power of the goodness of God, that's worthwhile. And he said those who engage in these debates, they distract the church. In fact, they ruin whole households, chapter one, verse 11 says. So because they do have an effect on the church and on the families in the church, here's what you do. It's a brief excursus on church discipline. You go to them personally and you warn them following the Gospel of Matthew's instructions. Then you take somebody with you and you warn them twice. Then you take them before the church and you dismiss them. You have nothing to do with them. You treat them as an outsider. That's Matthew 18, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now we struggle with those commands to avoid arguments, to avoid discord, because we know this, there are some things worth disputing. That's Paul is not saying to, to Titus. "Let everything go. Don't argue about anything. Peace at all costs." He's not saying that. He's saying, don't argue about those things that are not worth arguing about. But there are things worth disputing. We also know it feels divisive to us as Christians who are trying to do the right thing from the right heart, to divide ourselves from divisive people. We experienced this most recently at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't know what you read about it, but a lot of what you read in the media, a lot of what you see on social media, is just not a good representation of what's actually there. There was not a spirit of discord and conflict. It was actually very genial, very kind, very gentle, I think. But there was a recognition that there are issues that we must discuss, and if we disagree, we will dispute. And there is a necessity sometimes to divide yourself over issues of truth. Truth by its very nature divides. It divides from error. Righteousness by its very nature divides. It divides from sin, and so there are things. Well, Paul is talking here about priorities. What's worth debating, discussing, disputing? And second, there's a difference between needing to divide and loving to fight. Sometimes those things are necessary. Um, A divisive person loves to fight. Those people are usually self-evident. Warn them, warn them again, and have nothing to do with them. Why? Because we circle back. What's this about? It's about the overwhelming good of the gospel for all who would believe. So the final warning to them, have nothing more to do with them. Why? Because they're warped. They're sinful. They're self-condemned. They demonstrate by their division, by their discord to be self-condemned. And here is the fitting conclusion for every one of us. Verse 14. Let our people, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. If you want a simple challenge, this is, not, this is the pre-benediction to the benediction you're going to receive in just a few minutes. But may this be the aim of us all, Let's devote ourselves to good works. That's the positive. That's the positive takeaway. I want to be a force for good. May we learn to commit ourselves to that. And may we not, may we also determine to not be unfruitful people that we're not just going to fiddle away our ears until the Lord comes, but we're going to bear fruit as his people doing what he made us to do in the time that he made us to do it in the place that he allows us to do it in. Let's be God's people. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good. That is our, that is our essential affirmation today. That is our primary statement of objective truth that is our declaration of faith you are good and your mercies endure forever father thank you for that father i pray that in in some way every single believer in this room will have some sense of deep gratitude this morning for who we once were but the overwhelming decisive good of you that overcame who we once were and you saved us anyway in mercy and grace through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit which gave us new life through the work of Christ who was born for us, who lived for us, who loved us, and in his death rescued us from sin, and in his resurrection justifies us, and in his return will vindicate himself before all humanity for every eye will see him. Father, thank you that that's who you have done you have done for us and how you have done it for us and father thank you for the ultimate good that is ours may we store that away as a sure and certain foundation of assurance we have a hope we have a hope that cannot be taken from us but father now because our attention is here it's today it's tomorrow it's it's our own lives it's our it's our sons and daughters it's our community it's it's our jobs and it's our church Father, may we be forces for good. May we be representatives of Christ Jesus there. May we commit ourselves to to do good works, to not be unfruitful. In that, may you be glorified. In that, may we represent you rightly and well. In that, may many more be saved. In that, may we live in a way that is worthy of the reward of eternity. Father, in that, may we find our satisfaction and the good life that you desire for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all these things today because of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.